Well, that was fun. Uh, I have to be honest, Ronnie and Leah, I'm jealous of Quentin's hair already. I just need to tell you guys that right from the jump. You guys see that curly little hair there? That was kind of neat. Made me a little bitter, I'll be honest. Okay. Uh, do you all remember when you, no one's going to remember when you were that small, but do you remember when you were young? Uh, do you ever have any uh, fears as a child that were like unfounded, that were just really odd? Um, you know, I, I had some of those. and. And I uh, thought, you know, a fun exercise would be to find out what some other people's fears were so that I don't feel so dumb myself. And so I looked online. I found a couple of interesting things. There's a lady named Arion who said this. She said, I once overheard my mom telling another mom that when she was a child, she feared that an ant would crawl into her ear and establish a colony in her brain. She said, I didn't internalize the fact that her story was a joke, um, but I immediately became deeply afraid that an ant would crawl into my ear and establish a colony in my brain, right? A guy named Adam put it this way. He said, one fear I had, which makes no sense, is that I would end up on a TV show like Candid Camera um, and be humiliated on national TV. I became genuinely depressed thinking about this, and I once spent a whole week during a family vacation barely talking because I was so scared. I even did some math in my head to try to convince myself of how slim the chances were that this would ever happen. To this day, I have a strong dislike for hidden camera pranks, he said. And finally, Justin, I love this one. He said, we had a pool growing up. Um, and my biggest fear was while swimming in the deep end, a plane would fly over and drop a crate that had a shark in it. <laughs> the crate would then splash down next to me, releasing the shark before I had time to get out of the pool. So I ended up swimming in the shallow end a lot. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Oh, my goodness. I don't know what your fears were, and I don't think I had any quite that drastic, but I had some fears. Does anyone share as a, a kid the fear of the dark? Anyone have that one? Yeah, close the, turn the lights off, close the curtains or whatever, and all of a sudden things start showing up. Um, and I, I think as an adult, I've certainly gotten over that unless you come to Grace Point Church at like 10 p.m. and there's no lights on anywhere and you walk through a, a church in the dark. Anyone ever do that just for fun? That will reawaken some childhood fears for you, by the way, especially if you were to, let's say, even come early. I, I shared this with some of you before. I opened a the door downstairs where we keep our refrigerator and I was going to put my lunch in the fridge and a bat flew out in the dark right over my head. And uh, that put the fear of God in me again. If it wasn't there already, it reminded me of why I don't like uh, the dark uh, like that. You know, but, but hang with me for a minute on the dark, uh, on the dark. Um, I don't like the dark as a kid. And as I've gotten older, I've realized that I also don't really like the dark as an adult. Um, but I don't like something different about the dark now. And what I don't like about the dark is the dark that sometimes comes to me and sometimes comes to you in ways that I would rather it not come. And speaking of the darkness of loneliness, the darkness of depression, the darkness of bitterness, the darkness of feeling alone, the darkness of soul that sometimes comes to sit on us in ways that we weren't expecting, the darkness of the loss of things that we didn't expect we would ever lose, the darkness that comes I would prefer not to experience. And if you've walked through any amount of life, you've had that moment or know people who have had those moments. Um, I love Mother Teresa's story. Many of you know Mother Teresa. She was a, a nun in um, India and Calcutta and went to serve the least of, of these. And one of the things I learned about Mother Teresa is that early on in her life, she felt called to ministry, but then and she wrote in her journal um, in 1957 um, that for the next 50 years, after she heard God's call to go to Calcutta, for the next 50 years, she didn't hear a single thing from God. Here's, here, here's how she described it in her words. She said, in the darkness, Lord, my God, who am I that you should forsake me, the child of your love, and now become as the most hated one? 
The one you have thrown away is unwanted, unloved. I, I call, I cling, I want, and there is no one to answer. Where I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. Love, the word, it brings nothing. And then she finishes this way. I am told God lives in me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. C.S. Lewis, many of you know C.S. Lewis, a great writer and uh, theologian. He wrote a book when he was 42 years old called The Problem of Pain, and he approached that book from an academic level because as a 42-year-old, he hadn't experienced what he was about to experience. Twelve years later, he met and married a woman named Joy Davidman, fell in love, and um, never thought he would fall in love. But two years after their marriage, she died of cancer. He wrote a book called A Grief Observed on the heels of his wife's passing. And this is very different than the problem of pain. A grief observed, he wrote this in there, he said, but go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and a double bolting on the inside. And then after that, silence. You may as well turn away. He puts it this way, the longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It, may be, it might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? What an encouragement I can be to you. In this series that we're in called Backstory, I am convinced that there are parts of our stories that overlap with some stories in the Old Testament in particular that often we don't always tell. There are some stories of major characters and players in the history of the nation of Israel whose macro stories we know, but at a smaller level, we don't always focus on the little things that make their stories even more powerful. And this morning, we're going to look at another character to, to see another piece of her story in particular this morning that I think brings life and vitality to us that might connect with our own past and our own history. I've said in each message in this series before that I really agree with William Faulkner when he put it this way. He said, the past isn't dead, it isn't even past. And our past experiences, even the past experiences we've had of pain and loss and darkness and sadness and aloneness and depression and uncertainty, it's not gone. It comes back and hits us in ways that we don't always expect and aren't always sure about. And so we're trying to raise some of these things up to talk about them. And the question that I have for you this morning that I hope to resolve in some way in the text and give you some help for is this. That is, what do I do? What do I do when I'm walking in the dark? What do I do when I'm walking in the dark? What do I do when I actually feel and maybe can uh, relate to and resonate with some of what C.S. Lewis is writing or Mother Teresa is writing or what we're going to see in our text, what an ancient character in the Old Testament was also feeling. Now, you may be sitting here and saying, well, I'm grateful that I'm not in that space right now. And you may not be, and that can be good or, or, or not, depending upon where you're at. But I also want to ask this corollary question, because if you're not in this space, I want you to know that I think that you have friends who are. And so I want to put it this way. If you're not there, you can ask this question. How can I walk with those I love when they are walking in the dark? How can I walk with those I love when they are walking in the dark? Because walking in the dark comes for all of us. And I'll be honest, as a church, sometimes we don't always know how to talk about these harder things. And I want to spend a minute, at least this morning, talking about that. All right? So I'm looking forward to that. And to get into that story, I want to invite you to turn in your Bible, if you have one with you, to the Old Testament book of Ruth. Um, Ruth's uh, story is only four chapters long. It's kind of uh, if the beginning of the Bible is Genesis, and, and it is, then 
Uh, Psalms is kind of in the middle of the Old Testament, and Ruth is kind of in between the two of them. So in the first kind of third of the uh, Old Testament, you'll find Ruth. If you don't own a Bible, there's one in the chair near you there. That's our gift to you. You can also pull it up on your phone if you have the Version app or something else, and just flip over to Ruth. And we're actually going to be looking at the story of Ruth's uh, mother-in-law, Naomi. But to set it up, we're going to start from chapter one of, of Ruth. And and read the first few verses, and I'll just share a couple comments about that. So let's begin at the very beginning in Ruth chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So we're in Israel. There's a famine in Israel. And so a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. That's who we're talking about this morning. And the names of the two sons, his two sons, were Malan and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now, the reason they went, it's about a 50-mile journey, about a 50-mile journey, because they were looking to get some food. Now, you need to know that um, moving out of the promised land to Moab was not considered something that good Israelites would do. Uh, this is something that would be looked down on. It's not technically against the law of God to do, but it's essentially making the statement to your peers that in this situation, that we don't believe that the covenant God of our nation can take care of us, and so we're going to go take care of ourselves. We're leaving the covenant blessing of this nation to go somewhere else. That's essentially the message that they were sending. And so what happens next is, very unfortunate. Verse 3, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Naomi's now in a very vulnerable position. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth, and after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And if you're in the nation of Israel, which they left, and you were following their Instagram stories, and you were able to keep track of what was going on, you would then realize, aha, this is what happens when you leave the nation of Israel. This is what happens when you leave the covenant of God. And this would have been seen as God's judgment on Naomi and, and her family. The people who are providers and caretakers have died. And it would have been seen as a divine, basically, punishment for this. Now, marrying Moabite women, like her sons did, was also not, I'll say, illegal or against the law of God. It was against the law of God to marry Canaanites, but not Moabites. It just was also considered unwise. And the reason it was considered unwise is because often when you marry someone from another country, their gods come with them, all right? You just, you get the woman and you get her gods. It's just, it's just the way it is. So it was considered unwise to do that. Now, again, this is what they did. And so now we have Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, all of who are in a little bit of trouble. Now, what happened in verse 6 then, we see a little bit of a transition in the story. When Naomi heard while she was in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. And so all of a sudden she gets news 
God's actually providing for our people, so let's go back home where maybe we shouldn't have ever left in the first place. She doesn't say that. I'm kind of filling in some of those blanks. And let's get taken care of. And so if you can get, imagine the scene. I don't know how this works out, but you have Naomi and Ruth and Orpah walking down the road. The music is playing in the background. And then all of a sudden, Naomi stops and turns around. They're dragging their suitcases with those two wheels right on the, on the dirt road or whatever that road is. It's going 50 miles back to, uh, to Israel. And she says, um, verse 11, return home. Why would you come with me, my daughters? Am I going to have any more sons who would become your husbands? Like, return home. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they were grown up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And then verse 14, at this they wept aloud again and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. See that? They go together, the people and the gods, and they go together. Go back with her, verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And so Naomi realized that Ruth was serious, and she let her come with her. And then verse 19, they arrived back into Bethlehem, and we see what happens here. The two women went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. In other words, all the gossip train picked up, right? Oh, here are the people who left when it was bad and are coming back when it's good. Uh-huh, I see how that works. Oh, they were the people who received the judgment of God her husband died, and their two daughters, their sons died, like they're coming back. And everyone's aware, if you will, of kind of the scarlet letter that Naomi and uh, Ruth are wearing in that sense, only it's God's punishment they perceive to be on them. And because of that, the end of that verse says, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? <laughs> As if, can it actually be her? And I can only imagine that years and all the weight of the struggle have been sitting on her, and they're not even able to physically recognize her anymore. In verse 20, you can see how bad it is for Naomi here. This is the darkness of soul sitting on her. She says, don't call me Naomi, she told them. I don't even identify with that anymore. I don't know who that person was. Don't call me that. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And so Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Naomi's darkness of soul sits on her in such a deep way in this space, such a deep way, such a real way for her. And the story continues and unfolds. If you know the story, you know that Ruth, um, their daughter-in-law, uh, goes out to find a field to harvest uh, some barley. And she happens to stumble upon a guy named Boaz who's in the line uh, of what we call kinsman redeemers. He's meant to take care of the family if they get in trouble. And Ruth finds favor with him. It's a kind of a, a weird Old Testament barley harvest love story. I don't know if that sells anywhere, but that's just what happens. Um, and, and he ends up taking care of her. He ends up marrying her and legally taking on her estate with him. And then we pick up, verse, uh, pick up in verse 13 of chapter 4 after this story fast forwards all the way to the end of it. 
And we see verse 13 there that Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. And the women, who would have been the same women early in the chapter in the story of Ruth, who were talking to Naomi, they said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. And then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of who? That was not a very strong response at all. Let's do that one more time. With everybody in the room, they'll read that again. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Very good, thanks. The father of David. David's lineage is carried all the way back to this moment here, to this Moabite woman. And from David comes someone else rather famous that we know. And Jesus, right, would be traced back to the lineage of David. And it's actually incredibly amazing to think about God's sovereign redemption through the tragic story of Naomi and her family, that through a Moabite woman who they should never even have been around and never should have married, they did, and God still redeemed what was incredibly tragic for a long-term view that was really quite incredible. And I look at these stories, and I ask a couple questions, and one of them is, what can I learn in a story like this about God? And, and secondly, what can I learn about humanity. When I ask the question, what can I learn about God? Just some quick things come to mind. I just wanted to throw up here for you. First of all, in this story, God didn't redeem quickly. God didn't redeem quickly. It took years. In fact, I'd argue at least 12 years between the death of Naomi's husband to the death of the two um, sons as well. And from that moment, we have space and time moving forward. We have years of difficulty and challenge for Naomi. For Mother Teresa, she said it was 50 years when she experienced, that she experienced the kind of loneliness and sadness that she experienced. Um, for many, if you know your Bibles, there's a period of time between the Old Testament closing, no more writing in the Old Testament, and the New Testament opening, kind of a gap here of 400 years where God doesn't speak. We don't have a record of that. Can you imagine whole generations living and dying and wondering, living and dying and wondering, and there's nothing being spoken of from God? God didn't redeem quickly. There's no guarantee, whether I like it or not, there's no guarantee that God is going to relieve my pain nor your pain in our lifetime. It's just the reality of it. That may not feel nice, but it is what is true. God doesn't always redeem quickly. To make things worse, if you will, God was primarily silent. I mean, just be honest with that. We read the book of Ruth, we don't always see God speaking. In fact, we, we don't see God speaking. We just see God moving behind the scenes if you want to interpret it that way, which I would be, you know, fine to interpret that way. But I don't see God speaking here. One of my pastor friends put it this way. He said, silence is the primary language of God. I can relate to C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you can. I can relate to Mother Teresa, and I don't know if you can. When's the last time you've heard verbally from God? And we interpret our experiences in different ways. But silence is a primary language of God, whether I like that or I don't like that. And it forces me to ask the question in the middle of silence, where am I here? Where am I? How can I really be fully present and here in my faith when God, who I seem to follow, is silent? The ancient mystics had a tradition, a practice they called recollection. Uh, it was a, 
kind of a meditative practice. If you think of that word recollection, what they're actually doing is they're recollecting fragmented portions of themselves that exist in different parts of their world. In other words, sometimes you wake up and you're already fragmented, meaning you're worried about tomorrow, you're anxious about the past, you're concerned about something that's not happening where you are right now, and different fragmented portions of you are actually all over the place. You're in the past, you're in the future, and you're partially here in the present. This act of recollection or recollecting, the mystics used to kind of recollect their fragmented pieces of themselves and say, am I here and present, even in the middle of the silence of God? God's work is mysterious. I see that in this letter too, in this story, that I don't understand how or why God would choose to use the lineage of a Moabite woman to further his redemptive plans to bring the Messiah, but he does. I don't understand why he would allow this kind of tragedy to happen to Naomi, but he does. He does, he does, he does. So I'm convinced that we will experience God, we will experience God not just in the simplicity of clarity, but also in the trouble and hardship of mystery. Let me say that again. I'm convinced that we will experience God not just in the simplicity of clarity, meaning when everything is going well, everything is up and to the right. It's all clear. I see where I should go. We experience God not just then, but also in the trouble and hardship of mystery because mystery takes me to where God is. Parker Palmer is a teacher and writer. He put it this way. He said, mystery surrounds every deep experience of the human heart. The deeper we go into the heart's darkness or its light, the closer we get to the ultimate mystery of God. It surrounds every deep experience. It really does. Our society's tendency is to say we want to solve problems. We want to see a solution that can be maybe broken apart into five or ten different potential solutions and control outcomes, and let's put them together. And to allow mystery and even the tension of the unknown is very difficult for us to do. But simple answers don't work for complex problems. Mystery must be allowed in God's work, I would argue, is mysterious. Now, I also asked the question, what do I learn about humanity? What do I learn about Naomi? Here's what I learned about Naomi. You might learn more. First of all, Naomi is deeply and felt deeply abandoned, deeply abandoned, loss of support um, from her husband and then her son's dying. In fact, it became so bad that she really became uh, depressed and tied her depression to her identity. To change your name, I don't know if you can imagine how hard that must be, to stop being called your name, and to make your name be something like, my name's actually, like, don't even call me that anymore. My name is now Mara. My name is Bitter. Her depression became entangled with her identity. And part of the reality for that is that Naomi's depression then clouded her vision. This is what happens for those of us who walk through depression. And if you're in that space, let me walk with you for a minute, uh, because I journey in that space too. So let me, let me tell you, this isn't a judgment statement. Right, I'm not judging you for that. It just, I'm just simply pointing out it simply does that. Depression clouds our vision. We can't see as well. And you can't just tell someone walking through a valley of depression or loneliness or bitterness or anger. You can't just say, stop being depressed. <laughs> stop being depressed. It's clouding your vision. No, it, it simply does. So, for example, in this story, um, Naomi and Ruth, uh, in chapter 2, Ruth wakes up in the morning and she goes out and finds a field to harvest from. When she comes back, she comes back with all kinds of stuff, comes back with an abundance. It's like she went to Costco, right, instead of down to the dollar store. She comes back with like a Costco, you know, pile of stuff to which, to which Naomi's like, whoa, where did you get all that? 
And she said, well, I ran across this field, and the guy's name is Boaz, to which Naomi's like, oh, well, that's our kinsman redeemer. Like, he's a guy in our line who legally is required to consider taking care of us, so go back to his field. Don't you think Naomi could have actually told Ruth that before the day began? Don't you think Naomi could have said, hey, Ruth, as you're considering which fields to go to, there's someone named Boaz who's our kinsman redeemer. Why don't you try his field today? For sure she could have done that. She already had that information. She didn't. Why not? Too depressed. It clouds your vision. You can't see. You can't communicate. You're just, you're, you're stuck in it. Depression does that. It clouds our vision. It kind of settles in on us. It's not a judgment. It just is a thing, and it, it's hard. And so what do I do with these things? What do I do if I'm walking in the dark? In particular, what do you do, first of all, what do you do if you're walking with someone that you love who's walking in the dark? Let me encourage you this way. I want to encourage you, first of all, if you're walking with someone, be present. Be present with them. This is such um, a simple, but I hope profound truth. When I look at the story of Ruth and Naomi, this is exactly what Ruth did. When Naomi said to Ruth, go home, go home, go home, three times, go home, go home, go home. And Ruth Ruth said over and over again, actually, no, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to stay with you no matter what. I'm going to be present with you. And again, I love the way Parker Palmer puts it. He puts, puts it this way. He said, one of the hardest things One of the hardest things we must do sometimes is to be present to another person's pain without trying to fix it. To simply stand respectfully at the edge of that person's mystery and misery. Standing there, we feel useless and powerless. You feel that? I feel useless and powerless. I'm used to doing something, and I love the way he finishes it, which is exactly how a depressed person feels. If you want to walk with your loved one through that season, allow that to sit with you too. You don't have to offer advice to fix it. To be present with them allows you to be present with them. It allows them to share their burden of feeling useless and helpless in this moment. To be present with them, not unlike Ruth was with Naomi, who belligerently cared for her despite the obstacles, just kept staying with her. Now, if you're the one walking through this season of darkness, and if you're honest, you're struggling with loneliness or depression or bitterness like Naomi was, what, what do you do? I want to encourage you this way, to, to take courage to enter the woods, to take courage to enter the woods. If I can use that imagery of the journey through the woods is a, is a hard place. It's a beautiful place, but a really hard place. The terrain is raw and rugged, and you're going to be scratched and uh, pulled apart, and you're going to be really, really quite tired. You're going to have a history in the woods, and I love this poem. I'm not a poet, all right? In fact, I think I've been here almost 20 years. That's ridiculous. Anyway, I've been here almost 20 years. I don't think I've ever used a poem before in any of my messages. So I'm not a big poet guy, but, but I thought I found this one. I thought this was really, really helpful for it. And it actually comes from the Inferno of Dante, believe it or not. So all the poems, I go with that one. All right, here we go. Here's what, here's what he says in here. He says, midway, midway on our life's journey, I found myself in dark woods, the right road lost. You feel that? This is Naomi. This is Naomi's story. I found myself in dark woods, the right road lost. I don't know where to go. Midway on life's journey, I'm in the, I don't know where to go. The right road is lost. And then he goes on to, to tell about those woods is, is hard, so tangled and rough. If you're going to ask me to tell you about the things that really settle in in me. That's going to be really hard because you're asking me to untangle what's tangled and to go back to what has really been rough. And so to tell you about those is so hard. It's so 
tangled and rough. In fact, keep going this way and savage that thinking of it now. I feel the old fear stirring. Death is hardly more bitter. What's he saying? These thoughts are like savage, wild beasts. If you're asking me to revisit those thoughts and to remember what it was like to go through what I went through in the past, if you're asking me to revisit what brought me here to this darkness, it's a savage thought because it might consume me again. And just to think about it stirs the old fear. Can I talk about this of what was in my past? Can I do that? Death would almost be more welcome than going there. And yet, to treat the good I found there as well. I'll tell what I saw. Oh, wow, this is a scary place to go back to those woods to tell and to revisit the savage places that were, but yet to treat the good that I found there as well. I will tell you what I saw. Take courage to enter the woods because it's in the telling and and all of the pain and loneliness of what has gotten you there and the honesty of what got Naomi there when she was very honest with her own pain and loss. That is the story of redemption. Redemption doesn't come without tragedy. In fact, redemption isn't possible without tragedy, but redemption is the stronger storyline than tragedy. And God brings even the Messiah through the line of a Moabite woman in the middle of a story in which one main character felt incredibly lost, incredibly depressed, and incredibly dark. A space that brings fear to even the most courageous of us. And so let me encourage you. Be present with the people you love who are walking through these seasons of darkness. And if you are walking through this season of darkness like Naomi, take courage to enter the woods. I know it's hard. But for the good that you found that is there as well, be willing to tell what you see. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be together here this morning to walk through this story and to walk through the backstory of Ruth's and Naomi's stories. I pray for us this morning, we don't always speak about the darkness and hardness, about the lament, about the pain sometimes that we feel. We just want to move forward from it. It's confusing to know how to deal with it. I pray that you would help us learn how to be present with those of our friends and loved ones walking through this pain, to be present without judgment. And I pray that you would help us as we ourselves walk through this season, through times that are darker and harder. That you help us to have courage to enter the woods to journey where we need to journey, to talk to who we need to talk to, even though the thoughts sometimes feel so savage. Father, we love you. We thank you for the stories of raw honesty, even like Naomi. I pray that you give us courage to walk into the mystery of knowing you, even in this space. Father, we love you. Thank you for the time we can share together this morning. In Jesus' name.